I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. How about some of that shit? Oh, uh, that was cool. Uh, br- uh, brand new theme song for Feel Good Fridays. Feels I'll, good. It does feel good. Wow. Isn't it, fe- isn't it a feel good slapper? It is, yeah. So here's feels the, real good. That, that is coming to you from our very dear friend and very talented musician, uh, Rich O'Coin. And uh, so first of all, Rich, fucking thank you. Second of all, figured since, you know, now that we're uh, officially a CBC podcast and... Uh, we're not fucking going anywhere anytime soon. And I feel like, you know, these Feel Good Friday episodes, although we talk about COVID a lot, uh, f- fucking COVID ain't going to be around forever either. And so we decided to switch up our theme song for our Feel Good Fridays to make it a little more evergreen, a little less COVID-centric, and to make it still feel good. Welcome to Feel Good Friday. I'm Jeremy. So- and oh, so we're also, we're, we're so guys, we have a new intro. We do, we always okay. start it like this. Welcome to Feel Good Friday. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. And I'm Lauren. Hi. Oh. <laughs> Howdy! Oh, How oh, are oh, you? Oh, 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 oh. I love this new intro. Oh. I, do, I, I do just want to I, say... I hate us. <laughs> I know. I know that shows are shows like live shows in general. Ours, concerts uh, of the like, right. are not really a thing right now at the moment. But <clears throat> when you get the next opportunity to go to a Rich O'Coin live show... Oh, my Jesus. You are going to... It's wild. You were. It's going to change your life. It will. I mean, it, it is. will. It, you you have to when be, the parachute comes out. Yeah. You know what's crazy? Like the well, parachute that you you would go to and yeah. in gym class when you were like seven years old, and they'd pull out the parachute, and that was the best day ever. Yeah. That's a Rich O'Coin concert, literally. Yeah. Because that happens there. It, you. I. I think it. Uh, you know, we would be doing our our listeners a disservice if we didn't give the forewarning that you know you have to be you. Uh, they're amazing shows and they really, and you really just got to trust in the process. Um, it, it because it, it is a, it, you know, and rich, I, I think you're just a, such a strong individual for putting this forward, but you have to, it's, they're fully nude shows. So it's always, na- everyone's naked the whole time. You have it's, to show up there nude though. You, otherwise you don't get in. That's right. Yeah. You got to show up. You have to, you have to show up and valet your car naked. It is, yeah. it's the coolest. And, and those, all like, the valet parking lots around the venue know that. So it doesn't matter. You can go to any yeah. one of them. It's just fine. Yeah. Rich, exactly. it, and you rich, have to wear those like transparent face shields too. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's of right. Course. Yeah. yeah. And Rich, uh, so as ever, as all most Canadians know, uh, Rich is a very, he's a very staunch nudist. Um, he is the opposite of a never nude and he is never not nude. Uh, so, uh, and God, what a, 
what a body on that man. Um, so yeah, Rick, I saw the new music video. Yeah, it actually. Dude. Yeah, the, the first thirty seconds of the of Walls, the first the new music video that dropped actually today while we're recording this. I was like, I don't think I'm gay, but he's, then I thought I was gay. He's he's. <laughs> I, I would I would I would. Well, I'm, well, Rich, you're well, you're, on you're, the, rich, you're on the scale. Rich, you're a good friend of mine, and you're probably listening to this now. But hey, man, I would. Uh, do you want? Do you are you? Do you if you want? Do you want to have sex? I guess he can't really answer that. Uh, nope. Because this is a nope. podcast. But he's. But, nope. but he, if he's. Li- I know he's listening. He can text you. Yeah. Yeah. Pause for. Hey, thought. Rich. Rich, uh, text me right now and just say yes or no. <laughs> and and then okay and then I'll report back at what he said. So so thank you, Rich O'Coin. Uh, thank you to the entire band. That song, if you're into it, it's called It. Uh, Rich has a wonderful discography. Go check him out on Spotify. He's a fucking gem of a human, folks. I want to say this too. It's our first week on CBC. We're having a great, great old time. If you've never listened to our show before, uh, you are in for a treat today. Uh, our Friday episodes, typically, we, we started this once COVID started because COVID was putting a, COVID was, was taking my underwear and bunching them up and, and it was kind of like riding up my butthole. And I was, and we were going, we got to fix this. And so this yeah. is like an anti, we're, we're like trying to, we're trying to de-wedgie your wedgie yeah. surrounding COVID. <laughs> and so every Friday we are coming to you to try to put a bit of a smile on your face. And sometimes and we mostly pull the wedgie out a little bit, but sometimes it rides up. Sometimes, sometimes we hike it up purposely so, just to make it yeah. real, real interesting. Like, like kind of like today. Yeah, we do hike it up a little bit later. We are going to be speaking with Dr. Mark Tyndall about the opioid crisis uh, happening here in Canada. And let me tell you, that is a fucking wedgie. Uh, but uh, before we get into that wedgie, uh, we have some fun things to kind of just chit chat about. Um, also, guess- the the opioid crisis isn't funny. But no, no, it's referring a- to it as a wedgie. Wedgies is a- objectively funny. Well, wedgies. I mean, wedgies aren't wedgies funny. Are, wedgies are horrible. Yeah. No one. Lo- oh, well, I shouldn't say no one loves to get a wedgie, but I mean, the average the average person doesn't like to get a wedgie. I like. I like give it okay. Well, hold on. Have you ever? Do you ever like give yourself a wedgie though? Sometimes. No, I have never. Do you? Done that. No, me neither. Uh, <laughs> let's let's move on. Let's let's move on. Let's. This is special. Wait, Lauren, <laughs> you? Uh, I prefer to wear thong underwear. So, but it's like a low key wedgie. Yeah. It's a happy yeah. wedgie. That's it's what, a feel a good really wedgie. A wedgie that is it? Is it really a wedgie? I mean, I've never worn a thong, so I don't really. Yeah, you have to get used to it. Like I remember when I started yeah. wearing them when I graduated to big girl underwear. Yeah. So you could wear like <laughs> leggings. You wouldn't have to see like. Where you're, what kind of underwear you're wearing? Yeah, yeah I remember right, at right, first right. it was I, a little uncomf, but I, now I like it. I started I wearing it. I started wearing a thong in high school, and um, and it did it did take a while, but I think the thing that got me really into it was I had a couple as well was not the was not the thong, not the cloth, but the lack of cloth. So it was like the feel of the denim on my butt cheeks that I was mm. like, wow, this is mm. this is actually kind of nice. So mm. I, I mean, anyway, so listen, folks, uh, guys, and uh, gal, um, uh, did you have you guys ever like have you guys ever d- made a boo boo on like sending a text or sending an email um, like to the wrong person or something like that? You know, it's like it's like all right, I'll use what, the- like you did earlier to me today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, like sending a nude or something. Like I'm talking like kind of extreme where you're like, oopsie, I just sent like I just sent a nude to someone who was expecting it, 
but really it was my mom or so, or like, you know, something like that. Have you ever done that? <laughs> that would suck. No, I've never I haven't t- done that. It's never been in, it's never been that horrific of a situation, but I definitely have. You yes, sent you sent a, you sent a boo boo. Yeah, I've sent a boo boo. Lauren, I've sent a boo boo. Have you ever sent a boo boo, Lauren? Yeah, but like I think I've sent a couple work email boo boos, but never personal boo boos, thankfully. Okay, well I'm gonna I'm I'm about to drop uh, two huge boo boos. Um, when I say old boo boos, well, no, they're not. I I thank fuck not. Uh, when I say <laughs> Ole Miss, O L E Ole Miss, are you guys? Do you guys are you yeah. familiar with what that is? Is that a school? Yeah, it is. Yep. It's the University of Mississippi, and uh, the University of Mississippi made a little boo boo. Um, Ole Miss, uh, this is coming from, uh, Saturday down South. So I think this is like a, uh, like a, like a Southern university sort of newsletter thing. Uh, Saturday down South by the SDS staff, Ole Miss accidentally puts porn star on cups, honoring healthcare workers. All right. When you do an image search for doctors and nurses, you have to be careful as those are popular costumes to dress up for it, to dress up in for more well adult pursuits. <laughs> Ole Miss, so the University of Mississippi, uh, learned that lesson the hard way on Thursday when it was revealed that they'd made a huge mistake when trying to honor healthcare workers who have bravely okay. fought the COVID nineteen pandemic. As Twitter users noted, Ole Miss featured a picture of porn star Johnny Sins on a cup meant to feature pictures of healthcare workers. Yes. How did they mix that up? So, well, so Sins is dressed as a doctor, uh, but it was for one of his scenes, presumably, and it's likely that these cups will not be handed out at their, at their upcoming games. That was the whole idea, is they're going to hand out these cups to these games. Now, I'm going to bring up the photo here for you guys to get. Were they, were they like, were they Dixie, like were they handing them out for for like beer pong purposes? Like what was the? They, no, yeah, no, no, no. It so they're like they're like um like beer like mugs. Cu- beer cups at the games. Like you yeah, know, well, oh, okay. Oh, south, sure, of Mace, okay. south of the south of south of the Mason Dixon Taylor. Every everything you drink out of is a Dixie cup. Hey, hey, <laughs> hey, oh, look here it. for all of spoken your southern like jokes. A true, spoken like a true southern belle. So hey, Yippee-ki-yay. folks, if you want to look this up, just look up Ole Miss, um, Ole Miss porn and uh, and see what comes out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I actually did basically search that and it was fine. So here is Wait. here's the cup. Uh, you can see like the type of cup. There's the photo that they use, but within this collage. Uh-huh. You'll see this photo, Johnny Sins, American pornographic <laughs> actor. His name is Stephen Wolf, known as Johnny Sins, is an American pornographic actor, director, and YouTuber noted for his shaved head and muscular physique. He is currently, he is consistently among the most popular pornographic searches. Oh, he's in the movie, say, It's a Mommy Thing. Can I just yeah, say that yeah. my favorite part of his whole profile is that his spouse's name is Kissa Sins? Kissa Sins, I know, fuck. <laughs> How, so, so, okay, so uh, now... I know I started this off by telling you guys that I had two big boo-boos to share you. That was the first boo-boo. But when I read this article, and Lauren, you teed this up in our, in our Slack channel, I read this article, and it made me laugh, for sure, but it reminded me of something that happened a couple of years ago. And Brian and Taylor, I know we talked about this before, and, and you're gonna, when I tell you now, you're going to be reminded, and you'll, you'll also laugh. But Lauren, I don't know if you ever heard about this. A couple of years ago, and by a couple, I mean like it's like six years ago now. Like it was a while ago. There was a there was a, a tweet that went out <laughs> from American Airlines or U.S. Sorry, U.S. Airways, uh, and it was 
probably, you know, if someone's listening right now, and when I asked that question earlier where I said, hey, have you ever made a boo-boo where like you sent a nude to the wrong person? That's a big boo-boo. Like that would be a, that would be like a, you know, like a 9.9 out of 10 boo-boo. This boo-boo from US Airways is like an 11 out of 10 boo-boo, okay? I thought you said 9.9 to make enough room to say that this was a 10, and then you just went ahead and said it was an 11. This goes way, way worse than that. Was it Like 1.1 times worse. Way, way, way worse. Way worse. This comes from The Atlantic. This was an article written in 2014 by Philip Bump. Sick name, bro. Uh, Phil Bump. uh, Phil Bump comes out and says, here's here's the title of the article. No, no corporate tweet will ever be worse than U.S. Airways' tweet of a 777 crashing into a vagina. Oh, I saw that. So somehow... I remember that. So somehow U.S. US Airways' (laughs) official Twitter account retweeted a picture of a nude woman with a toy airplane inserted into her vagina. The list of things that would be worse to tweet is short enough that we feel comfortable awarding the airline all-time first-place victor in worst corporate social media hashtag brand strategy. Congratulations to all involved, especially the soon-to-be out-of-work tweeter behind the unfortunate image who now has something for his resume. Because it was meant to be sh- – like, it was the per- – whoever shared it or retweeted it, like, they meant to send it as, like, a message to somebody internally or whatever – and accidentally retweeted it on their page. That's right. right? Yeah. Something so on, something on those. That's lines. right. So uh, the tweet, which had been deleted, uh, eventually uh, after sitting on the airline's Twitter page for about an hour. Okay, so it was up for a bit. <laughs> an hour. An hour. That's a, yeah. That's, that's a. a that's oh Jesus. That's, that's too that's long for a boo boo. <laughs> yeah, that's enough to get five hundred million. <laughs> that's enough. That's enough. Uh, that's enough engagement. I no would say. publicity is bad publicity. Uh, you know that little box that shows a Twitter's profile, recent photos and videos. That box for U.S. Airways used to be a bit spicier, showing a bit more than plain interiors, so to speak. Incidentally, we've cropped that. Uh, so they, they have the image here. I'm going to show you guys the image in a second. But, it's a little box within a little box. Uh, Twitter detectives, including oh, those okay. at Deadspin, okay. quickly tracked the <laughs> image back to its origin. A Twitter user named ArtXDealer says, so, th- so this is how it worked. Someone tweeted, quote, WTF, one of your planes just crashed into my um, personal area. That 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 tweet tweet read. So oh no, sorry, that, sorry. This was a, I'm sorry. They fa- this was what the original the photo the photo that I'm about to show you. That's what was the tweeted, which, which okay. was what the fuck when your plane just crashed into my my pussy. Um, uh, it seems as though maybe someone from U.S. Airways. So so this is what they think. This is what, what how this could have happened. It seems as though maybe someone from U.S. Airways had cut and pasted the link to that absurd photo. Okay. And instead of linking to the airline's customer service page, which is what they were trying to do in respond to a tweet, they accidentally copied and pasted this picture of a tweet of someone going, oh, no, your plane crashed into my (laughs) hoo-ha. So so the the tweet that came in to them was... um, you ruined my spring break. I want some free stuff at U.S. Airways. Uh, uh, hate you. Okay. Wow. And it sounds like someone got some free stuff, but wasn't that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I want some free stuff or else I hate you. And so, so that was the tweet. That was the tweet that whoever was working for U.S. Airways was 
was trying to respond to. Okay, so so it said again, you ruined my spring break. I want some free stuff at U.S. Airways. Hate you, and that's H eight. You hate you. Okay. Now, U.S. Airways responds responds to that with a very, you know, very standard um, PR tweet, which is um, at the person who sent this. We don't like to hear this, Alex. Please provide feedback to our customer relations team here. And here is the photo that went along with that tweet. And oh and that and this and, and now I found for you guys I found the un the uncensored one which is very graphic and if you're at home and you're googling this, uh, if you're at work and you're gonna Google this, I dare you, I dare you, yeah, NS, NSFW, bro, dare you NSFW. to do it. That plane is crashing into this woman's <laughs> vagina and like it's going deep. Yeah. Like the whole cockpit is in there. Hey, oh, that was not. Oh, whoa, 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 dude, did you even, oh, was that no. even? Did you even mean to go there, or did that just happen organically? Guys, listen, man, I've been prepping this episode today all day. I was, I I was love, sitting on that one for a while. I love this podcast. We're just destigmatizing illness so effectively. It's amazing. You know what? Hey, man, right before we destigmatize, we got to do this part. That's right, because like I said, we are going to be talking to Dr. Mark Tyndall about the opioid crisis that is just ravaging our country, and there's nothing funny about it. So give us a moment while we talk about uh, 777 plane crashing into a woman's vagina. Um, U.S. Airways sent out that tweet. Ole Miss accidentally sent out a tweet of a porn star. I, I love the internet. I love the internet. I love it's, the internet. It's, it's a place where the joys and, uh, and, and, and the excitement and the spice of life is happening Ooh. on a moment-to-moment basis. Um, you know, comment sections are just enthralling. Zest. Um, it's yeah, zest. I just, I you guys aren't wrong. Every, it's the juge. It's the juge that I'm mm, here for. Mm. It's my favorite mm-hmm. place for a reasoned, balanced, and nuanced discussion. Yes. Yeah. I, I 100% <laughs> concur with that. Thank you, Lauren. Yeah. So uh, moving on, let's go into something a little more, a uh, little more serious, a little more. Uh, well, it's actually not serious, but it is. This is what I love about this. All right. So we all know that. Um, uh, did you guys know that there's a pandemic? Oh, somebody said something about one. Yeah. Saw something anyway, so in the headlines. Yeah, there's a global pandemic and people are sick. And um one of the one of the big things about this pandemic to prevent it from spreading is really simple. You just put a cloth mask over your face and wear it when you're in public spaces. Sounds easy. Sounds easy, but it seems like a but, lot of people have a very hard time wrapping their pretty little heads around that idea. Well, I mean, what about their freedom? Yeah, and if you have a pretty little head, why do you want to wrap fabric around it, you know? <laughs> uh, you know what's interesting? I, I saw uh, Brian Goldman retweeted something earlier today, and it was it was saying that the, the amount of people that um, right now are saying that they'll get the vaccine is actually, by the time the vaccine arrives, if only, uh, I think there's like a 50% confidence rating in, in, in that new vaccine, if 50% of people get it, it will be less effective than wearing a mask is right now. So people are like excited about the anticipation of like the uh, potentially having a vaccine like next year. Hmm. But if only 50% of people get it, it's actually more effective just to wear a mask today, which is something very easy that we can already do. Um, And speaking of the vaccines, it's uh, everyone should get their flu shot. Yes. So that way, like with the upcoming right, flu yeah. season, we yeah. don't get overwhelmed with both flu cases and COVID. So and, get y'all flu shots. Yeah. And also just get your flu shot for me. Just just for me. Just in, in the off chance that you meet me, 
your so me your absolute favorite podcaster out of every every individual podcaster that exists i'm definitely your favorite and if you meet me then you can just come right up to me and stick your tongue in my mouth and i won't say anything about it but wait, if you wait. but if you stick your tongue in my mouth and you didn't wait. get your fucking flu vaccine i swear i swear i wait. will be very very but angry but but what about but what about my freedom Right. Well, what about what I what about what I want? This is true. This is true. What about seatbelts. And, and I so um, so I do have to say, I do have to say this. There are some people out there who truly do believe that masks are silly or stupid. And here's the thing: is that you know we're, we uh, university has started back up. We live in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Whoop whoop, love it. And uh, university students have been coming back to our lovely province. And there's a lot of there. There's been there's been um, reports in the news of, of a number of students. You know, these young bucks walking about um, and, and they shouldn't be walking about because they're supposed to be quarantining for two weeks when they get to Nova Scotia. I mean, there's some people that haven't been doing that and they've been fined a thousand dollars and some of them have been expelled from university. And here's the thing is that like, you know, I think about myself when I was that age, a young buck walking about and I didn't take life very seriously. But right now is a time where we should we should be taking things seriously and I think there's a way for us to speak to youth that is um, that is pretty <laughs> unique, and and we need to like cut through the the bullshit, and we need to talk to them with a, a specific language. And I think that this video is a perfect fucking example of how we can go about this. This is one of my all time heroes, Paul Rudd, expressing why masks are important. If you haven't seen this, guys. I'm oh so this looks I'm amazing already. So fucking excited for you. Ready? <laughs> here we go. Paul Rudd's my favorite. Yeah. Yo, what up, Dogs? Paul Rudd here, actor and certified young person. A few days ago, I was talking on the iPhone with my homie Governor Cuomo, and he's just going off about how us millennials need to wear masks because get this: apparently, a lot of COVID is transmitted by us millennials. No cap. So Cuomo's asked me. He's like, Paul, you gotta help. What are you like, 26? And I didn't correct him. So then, <laughs> let's real talk. Masks, they're totally beast. So slide that into your DMs and twitch it. <laughs> Bad check. Yes, queens like ourselves. We want to go to bars. We want to drink, hook up, do our TikToks. I get it. I'm not going to preach at you like some celebrity. Ugh. This is a combo where I talk and you shut up and wear your mask. Hello? Oh, hi, Billie Eilish. What's that? You're wearing your mask? Man, I want to stand you. You're so my bae. <laughs> Yo, listen, hype beasts. Masks protect you and your dank squad. Beasts. Because caring about other people is the new not caring about other people. <laughs> now that's thick. You want a challenge? How about a... Stop the pandemic challenge. What about that? What about a save grandma challenge? That fun enough for you? My name is Paul, and I'm six feet tall almost. And I wear my mask, and it's all I ask that you wear your mask. Please wear your mask. Just wear a mask. Just wear a mask. It's easy. It's simple. Please. It's not hard. People are dying. Hundreds of thousands of people are dying, and it's preventable. It's preventable. Just wear a mask. I shouldn't have to make it fun. It's science. It's it's science. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that was how, amazing how oh. fucking good is that shit 
That was so wonderful. He's so um, he's just tell people uh, the Google the go- the Googleizer for that. Uh, uh, so, so just so look up look up Paul Rudd. Look up Paul Rudd uh, mask and and visually, it's definitely worth giving a giving a look at because oh. it's it's just so funny. But like yeah. you know, <clears throat> ah, fuck, I love Paul Rudd, and I love that I love because we've we've seen we've seen like the that and he kind of like he kind of makes a dig at it there but like we've seen those videos of like celebrities coming out and like going you know and singing like fucking in their mansions singing whatever beat like we're all in this together world. yeah whatever the fuck some beatles song we're like that shit that shit That's is just so song, it's just Brian. so cringe but what i love about this is that it is also so cringe but like in the most hilarious cringe worthy way you know what i mean it's like Ah, I'd love Paul. Like Rudd. cringy, Paul like Rudd, like it, like as if I did something like that. Like you'd cringe in the same way. No, right, Brian, you were cringe on a, you were, cringe on another. Level, yeah, you're dude. cringe on no, like no, dude. It was the same. No, no this is self aware cringe. That's right. Yeah, yes, just like yeah. me. Yeah, no. same thing. No. Yeah, Brian, you were no, so no. blissfully unaware. Oh my god, right. so, yeah. it, is, it is so funny though. Brian is kind of a caricature, uh, but in real life, of what Paul Rudd was trying to do there, because Brian, you dyed your hair pink, and then and then all of a sudden just started matching your sweaters to your hair. And, and like, sending yeah. us pictures of your pumpkin spice lattes. Yeah, Guys, yeah, I'm yeah. just trying to infil- infiltrate Gen Z. I'm like, I'm like yeah. that, like, yeah. but like hey. way more covert. Because hey, I got to, it's got to be what covert to get the COVID message out. Right, exactly. Yeah, don't, yeah. don't correct him. <laughs> don't Something like correct, that. Don't correct him. Um, no, guys, <clears throat> this is thick. I, oh, oh, don't say that. Triple that's, C. That's weird. Uh, I do love that. I do love that well, video. And, Lizzie Guzzlers. And big, big shout out to uh, to Paul Rudd. Um, we go way back. Uh, shout out, bro. I, I love you. And uh, just yeah, dude. Been too great. long. Also, also, Paul Rudd. I, I would have sex with you. And uh, just text me, yes or no. Um, so we also a couple of weeks ago, and this this is actually, so now we're gonna get into like uh, something some interesting talk. Do you guys remember our friend Doctor Delaire? Yes, sure do. We talked Do to, we remember Dr. Delaire that we talked to like two weeks ago yeah. or last week yeah, and we, the week before? Yeah, we literally talked to him not too long ago. Uh, when we were talking to him, we were talking about how um, there he's doing a study about uh, mammals catching COVID, like marine mammals catching COVID through our poop. Well, this is a really interesting article coming out of courts. Um, cities are using poop to look for early COVID-19 outbreaks. So this is uh, this is coming from uh, Kathleen Ellen Foley. So far, COVID nineteen testing has failed miserably to track the progress of the pandemic in the U.S. Not everyone who has the virus can access swabs based on diagnostic testing, and once they do, their results are often massively delayed by scheduling bottlenecks or short stock supplies. But scientists are hoping that a simple fact of life will complement swab testing. Everybody poops. In cities across the U.S., ranging from Boston, Mass. in the northeast to Las Vegas, Nevada in the southwest, scientists are working with public health officials to conduct wastewater-based epidemiology. Research early in the pandemic showed that people infected with SARS-CoV-2 shed bits of the virus genetic material in their feces. So by measuring the viral load in sewage, public health officials can get an idea of how... Per- prevalent the coronavirus is within a community. In combination with other data, sewage samples can even be an economical way to help determine whether a community is safe to open up or should consider restricting activities. That's pretty fucking 
No shit. Radical. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Dr. Lair on the leading edge, man. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Testing the viral load and the load. It says here, quote, (laughs) yeah, quote, wastewater is the convenient, uh, the convenient. Can you tell if you're in your semen? Yeah. uh, (laughs) If it is, then it's all over my bed sheets. I've got COVID all (laughs) over my bed sheets, (laughs) all over my socks. Like my socks are, you know, because I anyway, whatever. Uh, But to make this more medical, probably all over um, your keyboard, dude. Jerry, you actually don't have a keyboard. You don't have much of a load though because of. Cystic fibrosis. This is true. There is not much come. <laughs> there is not much come inside me. Again, later in the episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Mark Tyndall about the opioid crisis. But first, my come. Uh, quote, wastewater is convenient in that you get a population level understanding of transmission in a single sample. <clears throat> That's really fucking cool. Says David Larson, an environmental epidemiologist at, epidemiologist at Syracuse University who's been working with his local health department in Syracuse, New York, to monitor wastewater. Quote, it's extremely cost-effective. The tests employ the same kind of analysis as an individual swab, scanning a sample for viral genetic material using a technique called polymerase chain reaction. But instead of conducting dozens of individual tests, a single sewage sample provides a picture of all the COVID activity in the area. How fucking wow. interesting is that, eh? Could you imagine, though, instead of doing the nasal pharyngeal swabs, they just started swabbing your butthole when you went in for tests? That'd be great. Mm, I'd, I'd go be, for a test every day. I, yeah, I'd be. I'd line, <laughs> fucking sign me up, daddy. Yeah. <laughs> I have a, I think I have a cough. I think I have a temperature coming on. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to go get tested. I love the, Maybe, I, yeah, I love how your Taylor, voice. Do you want me to come over and test you? I love how your, I love your voice got like. Like a little horny when you, <laughs> when you like. When I'm gonna like, call an actual doctor, Doctor Sins. <laughs> whenever I think about, <laughs> I think about this, that was a great callback. Oh, Doctor Sins. Yeah, um, yeah, it's pretty fascinating stuff. So it's interesting that, like, you know, Doctor Lair, you know, they they've been hopping on that train because they knew, like, all right, this is this is gonna be coming out of her poop. And our poop goes into the, you know, a lot of places. Our poop goes into the the, the ocean. And our, our dolphins, dolphins live in the ocean. But I, you know, in talking to him, it, it didn't even dawn on me that it could be used as a measuring tool. Um, also, I just want to say we were talking about back to school. Kids are back in school. Congratulations, kids. Uh, great. Uh, you know, do your best in university. But uh, ass eating season this year, unfortunately, is being put on hold uh, mm-hmm. because it turns out COVID can be spread through your butt cheeks. <laughs> Cool. So uh, <clears throat> well, let's uh, throw into our conversation with uh, with Dr. Mark, uh, Mark Tindall. <laughs> listen, listen, uh, these Feel Good Friday episodes are meant to make you laugh. They're meant to be silly. But uh, this one, we get into some like, you know, this is like this. This is important shit. And uh, Mr. Mr. Mark Tindall knows his stuff when it comes to uh, opioid use and, and the 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 tragedy that is the opioid epidemic. That has uh, struck our country and and a lot of North America, um, and it's I, this conversation was eye opening, um, fascinating, um, uh, a little bit a little bit sad, but nonetheless extraordinarily important. So we hope you enjoy this, and um, and we'll be back on the the other side.
I'm happy to be here. I, um, yeah, the middle of July, I crashed on a mountain bike and uh, I -hmm. broke six ribs in my scapula, my clavicle, and punctured my lungs and bled from my kidneys and got a concussion and broke my hand. And like, I was a mess. So I was, uh, yeah, I was in hospital for almost a month. Um, crazy shit oh my god so now i'm uh, brian or taylor taylor also taylor got hit by a car on his bike and was all fucked up too about uh well it's been like a year now yeah a little over a year yeah so really really similar broke my pelvis broke a few ribs guys Uh, this is why we just don't we don't get on bikes (laughs) also also lacerated my kidney um yeah it was pretty much uh, go for a fucking walk (laughs) as you can see yeah i do quite a bit of mountain biking and i love biking yeah (laughs) Yeah, I do quite a bit. Um, just uh, and I had actually hurt myself the week before, so I wasn't going to ride that day. And then uh, my son was doing a, in a jump park, and I was just watching him. And then I thought, ah, just take one and follow him down. And uh, wasn't thinking, didn't have equipment on, and just crashed. And I don't Whoa. remember much else. So, uh, yeah. glad you're okay. Thanks. Um, yeah. Well, like I said, glad you're still with us, Mark, Thanks. because uh, you are doing some. Gosh darn important work uh, for folks who are maybe tuning in for, you know, the very first time or, or kind of newish to the podcast. Uh, this is not the first time that we sat down with Dr. Mark Tyndall. Uh, Mark is a public health physician, an advocate for people who use drugs and a professor at the UBC School of Population and Public Health. And um, I mean, <clears throat> you know, 2020 has been a fucking year for for everyone. Um, and the last time we had you on the show, we were talking about, um, the opioid crisis and how intense that that has been getting over the past, uh, several years. And we were talking about safe, uh, drug use. Um, but 2020 has been, uh, a, a, an absolute fucking disaster of a year, um, uh, in in your world, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is where Canada right now is looking at probably one of the the worst years on record for deaths uh, due to the op- opioid crisis. Not even am close, I, am I right by it? far. Not by yeah. far. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. And and, yeah. and give um just for a, a little bit of the the in the in the title there, advocate advocate for people who use drugs. I feel like sometimes that doesn't ring as in the in people's ears the way that you probably intend it to or that it, or that the actual meaning is get, yeah, Mark likes to party. <laughs> give some yeah. give some uh what is the context around around exactly what what that means well that's a good question i mean when i you know i take i've had different roles so if i'm like a professor or like um a clinician working with the people with addiction it really has a kind of hierarchical uh tone to it. And my feeling now, my role is really just to be a spokesperson and help the voices of people who are infected by drugs. And I think that's more and more where I feel most comfortable. My, I, I, since I, I left, when I talked to you before, I was the head of the BC Center for Disease Control. And I left that that's about fair. a year and a half ago. And, um, because I needed some freedom to speak. And um, as long as you're on the inside um, and you're carrying around these titles, uh, there's some expectation of what, what, you're, what you can do. Um, mm-hmm. And usually that's quite limited because uh, no matter what <clears throat> position you have, you all have bosses and people that are um, paying you. And uh, everybody's 
careful what they say. So I feel comfortable, most comfortable just saying, I'm just a concerned citizen. I know a lot of people who use drugs. I'm saddened by all the bullshit that's happening um, and little progress we've made. And so I feel most comfortable describing myself as just a advocate for people who are using drugs. Mm. Why is it important to advocate for people who who are using drugs? And we talked about overdose. And I know that in some of the articles that I read by you, you refer to them as drug poisonings. Um, I'm interested to get into that. But but why is it important to advocate for these people? I noticed that if you read any comment section on any article that you're in talking about the work that you're doing, you have probably 90% of people who are outspoken about why we shouldn't advocate for people who who are um, drug addicts. But why do you think it's important that we do? Well, they really have no voice. And when you think about the most uh, despised people in our society, it's people who use drugs. And uh, my experience, the, these, for the most part, these are people who, who uh, deserve most of our support and empathy. They're, they they mm-hmm. got there for a lot of different reasons, um, and nobody chose to be doing that. Um, and uh, things things went wrong for them for the most part, and uh, they just haven't been able to keep up with uh, the demands of society. Um, they've kind of checked out, um, but it's because of the society that's caused them to check out. And it seems crazy to then penalize and punish and criminalize. Though that that mm-hmm. population is the least people who deserve that kind of treatment. So, uh, and they don't, they don't have a voice. So, you know, you can't imagine, I mean, we have a really good example with COVID and the overdose crisis, how we care so much about COVID and uh, people that are dying of COVID. And uh, Mm. they, they, they fall far short of the people who are dying, young people who are dying every day of overdoses. And, uh, and we don't care. Uh, society mm-hmm. doesn't really care. And if that's what they chose to do and they want to kill themselves, uh, get on with it. And uh, you're not costing taxpayers as, as much money. Mm-hmm. So um, very sad. Mark, I want to uh, I want to just read a, an excerpt from the uh, the Globe and Mail article um, that came out the other day um, that um, that you uh, that you authored. Um, and uh, because it really it really stuck out to me. Um, entrenched stigma and general indifference to the plight of people who use drugs are at the root of our inaction. But the overdose crisis has also become entangled with poverty, homelessness, racism, sexual violence, and hyper-incarceration. Drug use and addiction are tied up with these social issues but are not responsible for them. In fact, that was the part that really kind of stuck to me. In fact, my work with people who use drugs has taught me that people often use drugs just to survive these injustices. Um, That really that really kind of stuck stuck out because I think it turns it, it kind of to what to, to your question there, Brian, I think it turns, it turns on its head. What people's, what people's um, largely uninformed reaction is to, to, mm. to what people are going through um, and, and the challenges that people face who are, who are addicted to using drugs. And, um, and y- when we first, when we first spoke with you, um, your your approach, um, and if I remember correctly, it was it, in, in my mind. I thought of it as we we think of this. We think of uh, drug addiction um, in this country and in North America and, and and in many parts of the world as you've got an addiction, just stop being addicted to it, and uh, you, you you use it, stop using it, 
And as if it's, as if it's, you are here and you need to be there. And there's actually so many more steps in between those two points. And you have a, a really, really, to me, eye-opening approach to doing that, that I had never thought of before. It never had occurred to me. And then as soon as we spoke with you, it made so much sense. What is, what is that, uh, that approach um, and, and the first steps that we need to be taking in addressing um, uh, these drug poisonings in, in Canada and around the world? Yeah, well, you touched on a bunch of things. I, I, I do believe that uh, we have things quite backwards that our approach is stop using drugs and then we'll help you. Um, where the whole reason people are using drugs is because they have all these other things they're trying to deal with. So obviously we should try and help them deal with their other problems first, and then uh, drugs will take care of themselves. People, you know, my experience of people who have reduced or stopped using drugs is because something better happened to them that they didn't have to use them anymore. So they Mm. got their kids back or they, uh, you know, they, uh, got a house or that, you know, things started moving for them in the right direction. And uh, they found something to fill that void and uh, something that made more sense for them. So that's how people get out of drug use. It's not like forced into some kind of treatment program or, you know, a very punitive approach. And, uh, and, and we, and, you know, we really dangle this carrot of recovery as though, uh, you know, just recover, you know, if you, if you try really hard, it's it's like people who get a cancer diagnosis and say, I'm going to beat cancer. Well, mm. you know, I mean, you can be a pretty strong person. Um, you don't have much control over that. You know, um, some people, you know, I think a good attitude's important, but, um, you know, it, it is kind of crazy to say, you know, if you're tough enough and strong enough, you can beat anything, you know, and uh, mm. addiction is the same thing. I can't walk up to somebody and say, you know, if you're just strong enough, you get get it together, you know, you can beat this, you know. Well, no, there's too many things happening to you right now. And uh, mm. what you need to do is beat poverty and beat homelessness and try and, you know, beat the trauma that led you to where you are in the first place. So I think we really need to uh, consider, you know, how people got there and try to deal with with those things rather than demand they stop using drugs so because most people yeah. using drugs it's, it's the answer like it's not it's not their problem if you ask them yeah. that's why they spend all all their time chasing after drugs because that's what gives them any kind of satisfaction that's what uh relieves a little bit of pain um so it's uh you know we we have to we, we can't expect people just to drop their drugs and then we'll take care of them we need to Take care of them first. It it reminds me, and I I forget where I've heard this from, but it reminds me of that study that was done with with the. It was like they they had a set of lab rats in a in a cage, and and they they had two water bottles for the lab rats, and one water bottle was like full of cocaine, and the other one was just regular water, or like water laced with cocaine, and then one was just water, and and the lab rats were like. They were like, obviously, I don't want the Coke water. Like, that's way more exciting than just normal water. And they're in a cage with nothing else in it. And they would just constantly go for the Coke, constantly go for the Coke, constantly go for the Coke. But then, then, and Mark, I'm sure you're aware of this study. Correct mm. me if I fuck this up, because I'm sure I will. I'm sure I will. But uh, then I believe what they did was they were like, all right, well, let's, let's take the rats out or the mice out, and we'll, we'll, we'll add a bunch of really fun stuff to the cage, like a bunch of, like, mouse... Uh, toys and like a spinning wheel and just like turn it into basically a mouse theme park 
with all this shit that they can have so much fun with and, and enjoy their lives while they're in this little cage. And let's put the Coke water in there and the, and the regular water in there as well and see what they do. Yeah. And the, the thing that happened was the, the mouse didn't go for the Coke water at all. He was just drinking the regular water and enjoying the space that it was provided, which was, you know, less stressful and, and barren and, and like, you know, destitute. And instead there was all these like joyous things around it and it didn't need to go to the Coke. Um, and I just, I, I find that so, so fascinating and Mm -hmm. such a, it, it totally ties into what you were just saying where, where it's like, you know, the root problem isn't, that people just really love to keep barreling down into their addiction. It's that there's circumstances that place them in that position. And until something changes, it, they're just going to spiral. Yeah. Well, that, that's a, a study from Bruce Alexander, who is from Vancouver, actually. That's back in the 70s. So this has been, this knowledge wow. has been there a long yeah. time. And the Rat Park example yeah. is uh, still real. Like it's, a, it, uh, yeah. I think it is really illustrative of the fact that uh, in the right environment, people don't need to use drugs like they use mm-hmm. now. And uh, in a terrible environment, that's what they use. Um, what What is it over the, what is it, if we've had that information, for so long what what is it in our whether it's our like social consciousness or whatever stigma yeah like Like, what is it that prevents us from really acknowledging that and like and putting that into some sort of like actionable thing yeah well i think overriding it's somewhat the reason we have prohibition and the reason we make these drugs illegal is to make them less attractive to people who aren't using them and if they if people feel if I get caught using this, I'm going to be, you know, up shit's creek and uh, have a criminal record. Somehow that would disincentivize people from using it. Clearly, people who are currently using it, prohibition and criminalization doesn't make any difference. I mean, I'm, it's unfortunate mm. that we drag people through the crime, the criminal system. And it's, you know, in many cities, it's like a police state, basically, it's just people getting jacked mm. up for their drug use. And so we've created a situation based on the fact we want to make this an unattractive thing. So maybe the first person who got arrested for using heroin and thrown in jail and came out and continued to use heroin, maybe we should have taken notice of that and said, yeah, this doesn't work. People, you know, they will continue to use. This is not a disincentive. And uh, in the cohort work that I've done and the clinical work I've done, it's hard to find somebody who's not a long-term drug user who hasn't been in jail. Like it's part of part of life. Like yeah. Yeah, that's just where you spend part of your time. And uh, so clearly it's not a disincentive for that group. And I don't think it's a disincentive for people who want to try using drugs either. So it's a, it's a crazy system that we perpetuated based on the fact that we want to make this unattractive to people. And so, Mm -hmm. and then we just hammered down, we just created this whole war on drugs and we've just uh, really um, made these drug policies that are highly damaging to not only the people using drugs, but our whole society is, is affected by this crazy policy. And somehow when things go wrong, we just, we just hammer down, we just double down on this Mm -hmm. idea and like, no, no, it's a totally stupid idea, you know, like that, you know, giving people dr- safer drugs is what we'll get into. I mean, somehow that's a radical idea. What? A, that's crazy. Why would you give people mm. drugs? Well, what are you doing right now? You're taking the most traumatized people in our society 
and you're arresting them and like yeah. and and putting them in jail like is that not a radical solution or a radical mm. way like what i'm suggesting is like and a further sense, like, traumatizing experience yeah. as well. Oh, I mean, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, prison, I'm I, sure for the for yeah. the average person is a is an extremely traumatizing experience. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the one of the things that you said that really uh, stuck out to me in this conversation so far was how, you know, we're we're dealing with COVID, this this global pandemic that that hits really close to home to everyone because everyone is you know, a- a- anyone is is uh, subject to catching this this virus and and getting really messed up from it, and and so everyone is concerned. Everyone is is doing their part to like make a difference uh, because it's so close to home. And for a lot of people out there, and maybe a lot of our our, our listeners, um, the the opioid crisis is. Uh, a bit removed from their life. Uh, you know, someone who's listening in Bedford, Nova Scotia, perhaps doesn't know a single person who is a drug user or, or uh, you know, has addiction to, to um, whatever, heroin or, or what have you. Um, so in that case, like for the people who are listening, um, and, and this might be a good way to kind of segue into safe drug use, um, can we like sort of break down the basics about drug use and, and overdose? Um, and in particular, like before COVID. So like, why are people overdosing and, and what are the things that we can do to try to prevent that? Yeah. I mean, to your first point, I think that um, there's so much stigma attached to it. I've done a lot of work or I've known a lot of uh, parents who've lost young or lost their kids like there's a really powerful group called mothers stop the harm and uh it's a lonely experience if your child dies of an overdose you you do not want to even tell people about it because it's it's got so much stigma it reflects bad that you must have been a bad parent like why why would my child end up doing that and uh it's a, you know, the the strength that the parents get from talking to each other is extremely helpful to them. Um, but as society, we don't want to hear about it. You know, it's a, yeah. it's got such thing when, you know, it, somebody like Prince who died of an overdose, you know, like he would have got far more attention if he had, a, you know, fallen off the stage and broke his back, you know, like, I mean, it, 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 it it's all of a sudden, oh, he's a kind of messed up guy you know he's a drug ad drug user you know we're not you know so mm-hmm. it's a it's a highly stigmatized thing so um mm. if somebody dies if you have a relative who dies of covid you probably get in the newspaper you know if you have a relative who dies of an overdose mm, i don't want to really talk to you about it um because it's a uh, you know they made it they really screwed up and you know it's it was their fault and uh you know mm. you, you're as parents especially you're really just almost embarrassed about it and uh that you know it takes a long time for you know the the very eloquent voices of of parents who've lost kids to to really explain themselves and feel you know that they can actually talk about it without feeling embarrassed almost um Mm -hmm. but for most people it's just a it's a huge stigma and so we don't really want to talk about it i mean there's been like 15 or 16 thousand people who have died in Canada in the last few years that's like a lot a lot of people and uh we don't Mm. talk it's not an election it was not an election issue um it's not you know it's just not a very popular thing to talk about and uh so that's a stigma but and but back to your question about you know 
what we can do. What's changed? I mean, I've been at this for 25 years. So I've seen things that haven't really changed very much. People still living in, you know, in squalor, still hustling for drugs all the time. I was in the downtown east side yesterday. Hasn't really changed much. You know, I talked to a friend down there who've been at it for a long time. And we all, it's worse than ever. Like, the, where did all these people mm. come from? Like, every, the, the sidewalks are lined with people openly injecting. Like, it's just like a crazy scene that was like yeah. that in the 80s and 90s. Hasn't changed very much. And um, But what's changed in the last uh, five years is fentanyl. So we used to have, in Vancouver uh-huh. and across Canada, uh, a fairly steady supply of, uh, of opioids. So... Um, in many major cities, it was heroin, but in many other cities, smaller cities, uh, it was diverted pharmaceutical drugs. So there was a there was always drugs that you could get your hands on that were uh, pharmaceutical, and I think the um, the heroin disappeared for economic and prohibition reasons. So the cartels started shipping uh, fentanyl instead of. Uh, heroin so that dried up Mm. and then the word on the street was that doctors were causing all this trouble stop prescribing these deadly drugs and uh the pharmaceutical uh dried up or got extremely expensive and so we put people in a huge squeeze that the only option they had is to uh, buy fentanyl or very adulterated opioids and then all we could do is tell them oh it's really dangerous out there and basically that's a just don't use drugs message like there's right. no pharmaceuticals right. we can give you. There's no heroin left. Just be careful. I think this drugs, these drugs could kill you. Mm-hmm. Um, and giving them no options when we had options. So we right. do have the pharmaceutical drugs. And that's what I'm trying to push. Like, that's the only thing we can do now is give people op- opportunity not to die is to offer them a regulated supply of the drugs that they want. Porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. And Decent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Brad, did you, sorry, did you have something there, Brad, that you wanted to chime in with? Uh, Well, I was just going to move on to to harm reduction and the role that harm reduction plays. Yeah, yeah. That's another thing that I feel like, so, you know, we've we've touched on it a couple times there, where it's like kind of a, like, fucking blows people's minds wide open, this idea of, like, safe supply and and or or even decriminalization of drugs mm-hmm. um can you speak to like the 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 thought behind that and and maybe even speak to like the i don't know the chances of that ever becoming a reality uh in canada because i know that there are some countries in on on uh, the planet which we call Earth, uh, that that actually have decriminalized drugs, and uh, and it seems to have been very a very successful thing. But maybe correct me if I'm wrong there. Yeah, I mean, I'm just speculating, but uh, I think there's other planets that have decriminalized drugs that are doing way better than ours. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I fingers crossed. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Kepler 22b. Yeah. I think they're doing it right. That's right. The uh, so the, I. 
Uh, as far as harm, what one reason that you know, obviously, a, a deadly poisonous street drug supply requires a different response than what we've been doing. So, I, you know, I've been working to promote uh, supervised injection sites. I was one of the evaluators of Insight back in twenty two thousand and three. Um, so, I strongly believe people need a safe place to come and use their drugs, but. Just in this, the last couple of years, hanging out at supervised injection sites, seeing people just come in, we know they have really toxic drugs, and then just waiting around till they overdose and rushing in with oxygen and naloxone. Like, really? Yeah, like, we yeah, do. There's, yeah. there's five or six now supervised injection sites just in the downtown east side. So we pay people, not very much, but they, they to work in there and they know how to give an naloxone needle like it's like really that's that's crazy like we know what they're we should try and give them an alternative to what they're using so it made it just Ooh. makes clear sense practical sense to me why wait till somebody overdoses when you can give them an alternative so that's kind of the Ooh. safe supply idea um, but it's tied in closely with decriminalization and decriminalization just um you know uh, really clouds everything that we do. So, you you know, as long as we have a system that still punishes people for using drugs by criminal sanctions, it's hard to do any harm reduction, really. Mm -hmm. And it gives and and why should pop why should the public care? It's basically criminalization is institutionalized stigma. So it's giving the society the go ahead. Well, of course, we should be stigmatizing these people. They're doing illegal activities like why Why yeah. should we have any? Why should we care? Like, so that would be a huge move if we said what we're what we've been doing for the last for the for decades is highly destructive and unusual punishment for something like using drugs. Um, we have to change course. So um, I think there is talk more talk about it than there was a few years ago. So I would have yeah. been in a camp that, you know, decriminalizing all drugs like in Canada can't see it. Um, mm. But. I think there's 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 moves, um, and when the government's now talking about safe supply, which again they weren't talking about three or two years ago, maybe, um, I think you could strongly make the case that basically a safe regulated supply is decriminalizing drugs. Like it's uh, it, it's they're right. tied in very close to each other, and uh, you know it's it's discouraging that we've made such slow progress, but. In some ways, the conversation has switched in the last uh, two years, maybe. Mm. And so it's, I don't think it's totally out of the question. And the only mm. country that's done it really is Portugal. Um, right. And they did it in 2001. I visited, I've spent time with all their drug people there and uh, toured. I've been around Portugal now. Uh, and uh, it's a really, uh, um, it's underwhelming. So they, it's still, you know, um, they don't go after people for just carrying some dope in their pocket, but it's still a quite prohibitionist and, uh, and there's Ooh. not much harm reduction. It's still heavily bent on abstinence base. So I think it's a start. Right. I mean, Portugal deserves a lot of credit. They really stepped outside of the box, but that was 20 years ago. Yeah, and there really hasn't Ooh. been much progress or much expansion of their program. Did when when they decriminalized? Did it have a like as far as the data goes? Was there a decrease in in like opioid users in Portugal? Yeah, yeah. No, it had a huge impact. Okay. Uh, 
interestingly, I mean, in Canada and especially in BC, there's a lot of researchers here. So there's a lot of papers around it. And I, you know, that's been my career and really documenting and evaluating things. Um, in Portugal, there's, there's not like a sentinel paper that really showed that everything went well, mm. but, um, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of evidence out there that, uh, at the time they did it, uh, Portugal had the highest uh, heroin use per capita. They had uh, the highest overdose rates, um, and all uh-huh. that switched around within a year wow. when they changed it. So uh, sure. they they're now you know down by the in the bottom of those statistics among European countries. Mm-hmm. There, there. One thing that you had said there uh, just a moment ago was was you know why should the public care and it. There, I want to. I just want to throw back to that Globe and Mail piece that you wrote, uh, because the the final the final paragraph there was really uh, kind of uh, is it the final? No, not not quite the final, but one of the paragraphs. Anyway, <laughs> uh, really stood out to me when I read it. Which which uh, you said for those who are unmoved by the human tragedy of the overdose crisis or feel that correcting our failed drug policies are too risky, consider the economic cost of doing nothing. Using data from 2015 to 2017, the Canadian substance use costs and harm reports uh, estimated that the opioid epidemic cost Canadians $6 billion per year, or about $177,000 per o- opioid user, when you add up the cost of the criminal justice system, healthcare, and lost productivity. That's staggering. $6 billion. That's, yeah, staggering, to say the least. Yeah. Um, and that's old data. I mean, you know, it's hard to get yeah. kind of those kind of uh, estimates out there. So it's always way behind. But obviously, things have got way worse the last two or three years. So that's a huge underestimation, I think, of what we yeah. do, even for one person. I used to, you know, before the oh, this current op- opioid crisis, uh, overdose crisis, um, my work in uh, at St. Paul's Hospital, where we had basically a whole ward donated dedicated to people who use drugs and had HIV, mm. and mm. the cost for of hospitalization just over and over and over again, and trying to keep people alive without spending Crazy. any kind of resources on changing their environment, um, made no sense. People like like regularly would cost this, the medical system a million dollars, like easily. They've been in, they're in mm-hmm. hospital six or eight times a year. Like, and then as soon as we get them over their current medical problem, they go back on the street. Like we spend nothing, like just get out of the hospital and then wait till they yeah. come back again and then spend <laughs> endless amounts of money again, trying not, you know, trying not to let them die. Well, mm-hmm. Mark, when we, sp- when we spoke to you last, um, when we spoke to you last, one of the one of the one of the big things, well, the reason that we were talking to you was because we were we were put in contact with you um, by someone that we that that we know um, um, that uh, that had a um, that had to do with with you know for for lack of a for for lack of a better term or the term that I'm not that I don't know fully, it was basically like uh, uh, opioid vending machines. Um, and that's why, and that's how we ended up speaking with each other, um, and and you you had framed this in my in my in, I, I want you to speak on that and where that has where where that has gone since that conversation, which I believe was like a year probably about two years ago now, and but also I just wanted to frame that by saying, um, you know, you had you had you had talked about how um, safe injection sites, you know, they play their part. But, you know, they can be 
They could be very busy. It could take a, 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 a very long time to, to receive a safe injection. And when you are heavily addicted to something, you, you might not necessarily have the time <laughs> or feel like you have the time to, to sit around waiting to do that. And there's a whole lot of barriers to, to making safe injection sites accessible to everybody, especially in a, in a, in somewhere like the downtown East side in Vancouver. What, what, what has gone on with, with those, with those machines, which were basically protected, um, uh, machines with biotech built into them so that people could access, um, you know, a safe supply of, of drugs. Um, and you can probably explain it a lot better than I just did. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I, I, I'll run through that story quickly. As far as supervised <laughs> thought, injection sites. I thought you were um, going to say, yes, I, I can explain it far better than you did. And, <laughs> and, and now I will. <laughs> um, when I, I think the supervised injection site story was based on uh, one site in all of Canada. So Insight started in 2003. And when I talked to you a couple of years ago, it was basically still the only sanctioned supervised injection site in all of Canada. So clearly uh, having a capacity of uh, seven or 800 people a day, um, it didn't even scratch the surface. So people, you know, if there's, you know, even in the downtown east side, an estimated between 10 and 15,000 people injecting multiple times a day, clearly it's not set up to make sure everybody does their injections at Insight. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2016, mm-hmm. at, in December, the, uh, the probably the only uh, main uh, uh, bold move that the BC government did since the overdose crisis is opening up more supervised injection sites. So there's about 30 in BC right now. Again, nowhere near meeting demand if we expect people to use them all the time, but uh, it does open it up. And as I said, in downtown east side now, there's six. So, you know, people don't you generally have to wait a long time to use them. But we know from the overdose data that uh, 80% of people who have died of an overdose are found alone. So, you know, and uh, many of those people may have used a supervised injection site in their past, but during the time when they needed it, when they took that fatal injection, they were alone. And so, again, ties closely into our stigma and criminalization, because how can we expect people to just to openly use their drugs? Like, that's just not the way we've programmed them. So it's a big step for a lot of people to openly come into a supervised site and have people watch them use drugs. It's not the way people normally want to do it. So, uh, it's a, it's, they're important. Um, I think it's a great way to connect with people, but it's not really a, a soundproof overdose prevention model because then we'd expect everybody to be using them. And there's just no capacity for that to happen with fentanyl, even more so than with, than with heroin, the half-life is quite short. You talk to people who are injecting five, six, eight times a day. So obviously they're Ooh. not going to be able to line up and go into a supervised injection site with everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but as far as the machine goes, I mean, it's really a work in progress. Um, Corey Yantha, who introduced me to you guys, um, he, him and I have really been spearheading this thing. And uh, we had... Um, we have one machine um, up until last week, just one machine in the downtown east side that we finally got out in December of uh, 2019. So it's been going for about eight months. Uh, 
haven't been successful getting government funding for this. So it's just uh, run by volunteers and uh, the company dispension has, you know, committed to giving the machine to for us to use and try. Um, so it's been a real struggle to uh, get uh, proper funding. There's been quite a bit of attention, like people think, oh, mm. this is a pretty crazy idea kind of thing. So I've had the opportunity to talk about it a lot, but nobody's come up with and said, you know, we really want to expand this program. Um, we've, I've learned quite a bit. I mean, I've literally spent most of my days um, before my injury uh, standing beside the machine and uh, talking to the people using it. So we've all together, we've enrolled 20 people. There's about uh, 10 or 12 that use it every day there some of the other people have actually graduated so a uh, couple aren't using oh, much shit. anymore uh, a couple i've given like a week supply they don't need to come in multiple times a day or every day um, pretty much everybody well everybody's done better like and uh, two people have yeah. moved away because they've you know reconnected with their family in ontario or something so it's been wow. you know highly successful so people um use it they um they wake up in the morning feeling drug sick and instead of going and having to find their money in the informal economy um <laughs> they can just come and get it and uh takes a yeah. lot of stress away from them and uh, they know they have it and then they're free to take their drugs with them i don't need to supervise them they don't need to use in a supervised injection site because i know what they're taking and they're not going to overdose so it's mm-hmm. it's it's perfectly mm-hmm. safe they can go home and use by themselves if they want to it's just not not a thing so um but it's been a it's been a struggle i mean we've learned a lot from you know this feasibility study and um it's been a cool experience uh getting to know everybody using it but it's really Corey and i and i'm there some days with my screwdriver fixing something or like we're you know (laughs) i'm I'm filled literally um you know it's volunteers do it but you know, mm-hmm. often I'm the one filling up the machine with the pills and stuff. So it's really been a, you know, a very uh, grassroots effort. That, <laughs> and so mm-hmm. we've got five new machines that have just been uh, delivered last week, actually. Oh, cool. So, awesome. Uh, is, um, it, yeah. is it kind of like, um, you know, when, when you're like 16, 17 years old and your parents are like, you know, I, I know you're going to drink. So it, I'd feel more comfortable if you did it in our basement and we're going to buy you the alcohol so we know what you're drinking and we can supervise you in a safe manner when you get intoxicated with your friends. Is it kind of like the same idea as that? I think so. Yeah. Why would, yeah. Why would you want to prohibit your kids knowing they're going to use it and uh, do it in Mm. dangerous places and steal stuff to get it? Like, but it reminds me, it reminds me of like the fact that like every other parent on the block would be like, you can't let my kid drink. Yeah. You're going to supervise them. That's fucking crazy. They're they're going to go drink in the woods and (laughs) trip on a rock and bust their head open. So Mark Dindal is the cool dad. (laughs) Just for, just for some context, because I know like, I, I know, I, I, I use, I, I say, you know, opioid vending machine for like a little bit of comic, co- like comedic, comedic, comedic purposes, but, but explain, like, how does, how does this machine work? Because I'm sure when, when somebody hears me, hears us talk about a machine where somebody can come and get drugs and it's on the street. Some people, people think, how does somebody not steal it? How do, how do people not, yeah. how do people not steal from it? 
Like, how do people get? How yeah, because I've stolen I've stolen a fuckload of chips from vending <laughs> machines in my day, and a couple of Gatorades. Like, and d- can you can you just shake hard. it? And and if you shake hard yeah. enough, stuff will come out. You got to tilt you know. it on the yeah. right angle. <laughs> That's right. That's well, right. you know, uh, in the current situation of people dropping dead from fentanyl, I'd almost think that would be a good idea. Like just yeah, right. like take it, like you know, give it to your Ooh. friends. You know, like it, we need to flood the market. If we really, if we wanted to stop overdose deaths in Vancouver tomorrow, we'd get a truckload of heroin and put it on the street corner, and people could come with their little shovels and just take some. Like it, it, we, we wouldn't have any overdoses. You're but. a you're a legit revolutionary, Mark. I mean, because because I know exactly what you mean. You mean you would know mm-hmm. what they're getting. You would know yeah. what's in the stuff that that people are taking. They're going to take it. Yeah. They're not going to be. They're not going to recover from their drug addiction tomorrow. Let's not give them dirty drugs. Yeah. So that's, I mean, you know, when people are worried about diversion, like, well, I don't care. If you have your buddy is drug sick and they're going to use fentanyl, sure, give them some of yours. Like, but anyways, that's for off the record um, because that's not what the regulators want to hear, right? They want to hear right. an airtight way that I ensure that every pill coming out of that machine goes to that person. And so, and we have... Um, followed all the regulations. So I'm a doctor. There's another colleague of mine who's writing some scripts. I can legally write a hydromorphone script for somebody. I send it to the pharmacy. They can legally dispense this stuff. They do it all the time. Um, Once it leaves the pharmacy, it's kind of up to the patient or the participant uh, what they do with those drugs. And basically, they've agreed to put them in the machine. So these aren't Ooh. my these aren't a whole slew of drugs that I've accessed and I'm giving them out to people. Although I'd be happy to do that. Um, this is their prescription, so they they get it. They've agreed to put it in a safe lockbox. So instead of Ooh. carrying it in their pocket or taking it to a tent or like not being able to know where it is getting jacked up for their drugs, it's a safe place for them to keep it. So they go, Mm -hmm. and then I can regulate uh, the machine and an individual how often they come to pick it up. Most people, at least at the beginning, everybody started off having to come four times a day. So they got basically one dose at a time. When COVID struck, um, we wanted to reduce the traffic. So everybody gets a daily pickup now. So they have to Mm -hmm. come once a day to get it the machine is 800 pounds bolted to the ground uh it's pretty obvious that there's no uh ability to break into it i guess if some guy had a pickup truck and 20 friends and they wanted to haul the machine but seems like a lot of trouble i it just you know is not even thought of it's not a threat yeah um and it's highly uh individualized so the biometrics uh, people just put their hand up to the machine, recognizes them, welcomes them, and dispenses their drugs. So it's it can't mm. fail. Like it's a, it's foolproof. As you know, way better than somebody going into a pharmacy or a medical clinic and having to be identified, and somebody yeah. has to hand them the drugs. I mean, that's great. That's full. That's full of mistakes. Mm. This and is the, like and the stigma that goes yeah. along with that yeah. experience as yeah. well. Yeah. It's funny because yeah. it, just in terms of like the quality of drugs that you get, it, it it makes me think of like buying weed before it was legalized. Like you just show up in a parking lot and meet up with a dude yeah. that would tell you that he's selling you something like purple haze or <laughs> purple no, whatever Kush or something, and you would have no idea what it is. But now that you can walk into like a a legal um, place where you can buy weed, there's like 
descriptions of what this will do, the exact yeah. percentage of THC and yeah. a much more guided um, way to purchase that drug and understand how it's going to affect your body. And I know that this is yeah. completely different, but yeah, no, imagine, imagine if your kids were going out and buying uh, some kind of alcohol in the bush from somebody they didn't know in a, you know, yeah. an unmarked bottle and then they right. die yeah. you go, yeah. what the hell? Like, why yeah. would we, why would we allow mm. that ever to happen? Give them the alcohol, you know, we would mm. never tolerate mm. that. But somehow mm. with, with the, these illegal drugs, ah, it's your fault. If you want to take them, you don't know what they're doing. Oh, that's mm, too yeah. bad. They mm. had too much and you died. Like, that's mm. really yeah. a crazy, crazy approach to things. Like, and also we're, and again, we're like, just to, from that stigma. just to put mm. an asterisk on this too, like, we're talking about this as if the, like, hypothetically, hypothetically as if this person is making that rational decision to go out and buy that you know when you know the reality is is that there's so many like inequities and situations like comorbidities with mental health issues that that lead to somebody being a drug user in the first place yeah yeah the before i leave the impression that uh i think drugs are harmless and we should just give i i don't i mean i've seen the, the worst destruction of people's lives because they're driven for these drugs. So I, I do recognize the power and the destructiveness of the, these drugs. But most of the problems people face are because of prohibition, not so much the drugs. And if they got yeah. like a good quality heroin, uh, they have t- lots of time to figure out why they're using heroin and they would not be not be dying. And so uh, I, I think and people then make when they're desperate, and especially with opioids, people do make crazy decisions what they're going to take. They'll take anything, and uh, mm. they'll buy anything. And so it, and, and it's very sad because they um, mm. are not in a position, they're feeling so sick, they have to get something, that they'll uh, take it from anybody. And that's another terrible thing with prohibition because even in the underground market, most people still have a dealer that they sort of trust and sort of know and sort of consistent. And in a criminalized mm-hmm. environment, we put people in a jeopardy every day. Their dealer disappeared. He just got arrested. They or she got arrested. Right. Like, yeah. they, we mm. always are putting people in a very precarious situation where they're desperately seeking anything. And, mm-hmm. uh, mm. and then they get a bad batch and they have one chance. That's it. This is one of, you know, every once in a while we'll cover a topic that is, is, that surrounds something that demands like really large scale change. And I know that I'm not alone in, in feeling this, feeling almost like helpless as someone from where I'm sitting, like, well, what the fuck can I do? Like, how, how can I contribute here? How can I help? Um, This, this seems so much bigger than myself. And for anyone who's listening right now and, and is thinking that and feeling that, do you have any, do you have any insight into what, what people can do to try to make a difference with something so, so monumental as this? I mean, I'm asked this question all the time and I don't have a really good answer. I think that for people, there's a lot of, uh, you know, great work that goes on by people that I meet who just working the front lines and just really helping people. And so there you can, you can do that, but it's not going to change the situation. We need like Mm. massive, a political shift. And so we need to put pressure on our government officials and say, this is crazy what you're doing. Like what's happening in Alberta right now with Jason Kenney and his government, 
is criminal. He's going against everything we've learned about addiction and clamping mm. down on harm reduction, talking about mandatory treatment for people, like things that are just outrageous. And uh, we need to have people stand up and say, we're not accepting this. What you're doing now, mm. they closed down the busiest supervised injection site in Canada, in Lethbridge. Like, that mm. should never happen. The public, public should be outraged that something like that was happening. So I think we can make you know, some uh, inroads and in have trying to have a political voice and pushing back on these terrible injustices that that uh, mm. some governments and we're getting more, not less kind of uh, more right wing, whatever you want to describe it, but more prohibitionist, tough on crime yeah. kind of talk. And uh, it is just totally antithetical to everything we've learned about addiction. And so mm -hmm. I think we should really demand something. I have found from my being on the inside and working with the BC Center for Disease Control that the system for any kind of change in, in health care or any kind of major policy shift is uh, is set up for failure because there's just so many levels of people need like to get a safe supply in in BC. Like you have to involve the College of Pharmacists, the College of Physicians, the federal government, the provincial government, the city government, the health authority like it just sets up this huge, you know, so to get anything mm. passed or done or make anything happen is just so frustrating because everybody yeah. feels they have a say in this thing. And that's why the machine, I just dropped it in the downtown east side. So there's nobody that gave me permission per se. Everybody knows about it. Most of the stakeholders have visited it. Um, nobody's come after me, but, uh, Nobody like supported it. Yeah, it's like those scooters. They just drop. Yeah. It's, it's exactly yeah, like cool. the scooters. <laughs> yeah. Mark, yeah. Uh, I gotta say, it's it's always it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and and always a, a very um, a very uh, um, eye opening experience. Uh, uh, you know, this is this is going up on our feel good Friday episode, and I, I feel like feel like a lot of people are going to be listening to this, being like, I don't feel so good. <laughs> uh, but again, uh, you know, sometimes we interchange feel good Friday with real talk Friday. So okay, thank yeah. you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to sit down with us and to uh, to to continue to fight for something that is so so gosh darn important. Okay. Yeah, uh, it really really means the world and, to us. So thank you so and much. I, and I, I love I love talking to you guys. So yeah. it's a very uh, very comfortable place to talk and uh, so thank you for inviting me. I would uh, I would also just like to add there that a, a a very heartfelt thank you because you 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 clearly are 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 100% committed to standing up for uh, a, a, a population of people who, who most people are are just looking down on and um, and don't have a voice, and um, I think that's really commendable. And thank you for that. Okay, thank you. Well, there you go, folks. Uh, our conversation with Dr. Mark Tindall. If you if you, I, I feel like we might have mentioned in there in there, but. Uh, that was this was not the first time we had Mark on the show. So if you want to go listen to his episode, uh, just plug his name into Google and Sick Boy Podcast, and you'll be able to find that episode. I don't have the number offhand here. Probably should have. Man, he's it. such a he's I'll such a it. badass. He, he, yeah, he's pretty. Sweet. He really is. He really is. And and Tay, like you really you really nailed it there at the end in in just acknowledging that like this guy wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. like truly believes in this cause and is dedicating 
every ounce of his life to like to fight to fight for an entirely like a, a, a just a, just an entire population of people that that are being completely fucking ignored you know yeah mm-hmm. totally <clears throat> yeah. yeah and you can you can really tell like you can it's just it's so <clears throat> it's so obvious how much he cares mm-hmm. yeah. and how and how he yeah it's uh, it's it's impressive to say the least yeah um, so again, <clears throat> we've, we recorded an episode with, uh, Dr. Mark Dindal in the past. I highly suggest you go check it out if you enjoyed that conversation. Um, it's, uh, episode 142. Look at the, the look opioid epidemic with Dr. Mark Tindall. Fucking Lauren on it, on it, as per usual. Um, and, uh, yeah, definitely go listen to that. Cause, uh, that guy's awesome and we love him and, and I'm sure this won't be the last time that we have him. You're even show. better than young Jamie. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. Absolutely. Wow. That is a high compliment high praise all right well that is all for uh for today folks uh thank you so much for tuning in as always we are coming at you every monday and friday for your little sick boy fix and you can find us wherever you uh get your podcast wherever good podcasts are found or over on the cbc listen app and if you can't get enough of us here uh here's a little suggestion why not head over to instagram and or twitter and follow us at Sick Boy Podcast. Uh, there's always fun shit going up there, and uh, Lauren's beyond our, our communications there, and she's whipping up amazing posts to uh, to keep you interested and laughing. That is a wonderful little piece of advice, Jer. If you have any questions or comments that you'd like us to read on the show, or if you want to apply to be on the show, head over to sickboypodcast.com slash contact, sickboypodcast.com slash contact, or you can email us, email us directly at letters at sickboypodcast.com, and we might uh, read if you if you send us a little sweet note or if you want to tell us anything we might just read your uh, read your shit on the show yeah and uh, and that's something new that we're doing and we're we're really excited we've got some letters that uh, we have kind of teed up to read in the future so <clears throat> if you want to join that that whole uh, bag of letters uh, for us to reach in and pull out then head on over letters at sickboypodcast.com. and sick boy podcast is co-produced by Jeremy Saunders Taylor McGilvery myself and. Lauren Sankey. Who is that? I don't know. That's you. She's pretty cool, I though. The name was. <laughs> I thought it was Horn Skanky. I wasn't going to go there. Oh, wow, you uh, went there Horn Skanky also runs our social media. So hey, hey, shut Horns, up. For that. Horn, look, I didn't know her. Your nickname was Horn Skanky, Lauren, until you told me it was Horn Skanky. That's not me. That wasn't us. Do you know how long it took us. everyone in high school to figure that out? <laughs> Three seconds. About ten seconds. <laughs> While you're yeah. crossing exactly. the stage to get your diploma, they're like, wait a minute. Oh. Honor graduate. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I guess at this point, I should also say that Sick Boy Podcast is managed by the one and only Jeff Lonis. And the sound design on the show is done by um, somebody who could only be referred to as, if, if we were to compare... Sick Boy Podcast. If Sick Boy Podcast was a chocolate chip cookie, Ooh. like one of those like ones that not the soft ones, but the ones that are almost a little bit crumbly, Ooh. then Donovan, the CPAP Morgan, would be a cold glass of milk. You know, you just like you just need it. It just complements it so well. And um, and also um, the theme music, guys. That how about that new theme song? Rich O'Coin. I mean, really, it, you know, what's really fun about that theme song is uh, it's how it's going to lead us out of this conversation. 
and I can I can hear it swelling right now. Oh, oh I want it. I, I need it. Oh, don't say swelling. Uh, that is it for this week. <laughs> I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. I'm Lauren. And I'm Jeremy. And this is Sydney. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.